G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. Elizabeth Kendall's joining us. She is a religious liberty analyst. She is a prayer advocate. You can subscribe to Elizabeth's Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. She's also the author of the book, which is called Turn Back the Battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. And, of course, the focus of that book uh, is people who are under persecution. She's also adjunct research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology for many, many years. Elizabeth was the uh, chief researcher for the... the, uh, uh, Elizabeth, you're with us. Uh, It was the, uh, the evangelical... World Evangelical Alliance. There you go. See, I was doing that one off the top of my head. The World Evangelical Alliance, which so many uh, Protestant churches primarily are a part of, and and uh, you had made it your mission in life uh, to uh, to actually alert Christian believers to the things they were not seeing on the 6 o'clock news about the persecution issues that were being faced around the world. Uh, welcome along today, Elizabeth. Oh, thanks for having me, Neil. <laughs> Elizabeth, let's start, and there are so many things to talk about, and uh, just for uh, for listeners who will be thinking, what's coming? Well, we want to uh, talk about the rise of Hindu nationalism and what that is meaning in India today. Uh, we also want to talk about Nigeria. Uh, remember those schoolgirls, uh, more than 200 schoolgirls that were abducted? Well, we want to talk about those schoolgirls and some very interesting and disturbing twists uh, that you might be unfamiliar at at this stage about. We also want to talk about, of course, the dreadful persecution that's going on in Syria and in Iraq, the rise of the Islamic State. And we want to talk about Aussies. Here we are, down under. Are we completely removed from all of these goings-on around the world? Well, this hour we'll be talking through a lot of issues, and I do hope you can stay with us. Elizabeth, just this past weekend, you were one of the guest speakers at a rally in Melbourne, there at Melbourne's Federation Square, just this uh, past Saturday. Uh, Several thousand Syrian and Iraqi Christians gathered for that uh, particular uh, walk of solidarity. Uh, Tell us about how how that all started to unfold on Saturday. Yes, well, it was a a wonderful event, and all credit to the uh, Iraqi um, Syrian youths who put... <clears throat> who put the event on and, and organised it. Uh, sun was shining. There was a large crowd there. A similar rally uh, took place in Sydney. In fact, there were rallies all around the world on, uh, this, on Saturday, the 2nd of August. And I had the great honour of addressing the rally in Melbourne. And it's very humbling, you know, when you look at this crowd and you realise that so many of these people... Um, it's not just their homeland they're grieving for. It's the fact that they've got grandmothers and grandparents and maybe even their own parents or cousins or relatives are still over there. So they are profoundly attached to this crisis. They are right here in our midst. It's, it's, um, 
It's, I, I feel like it's a very uh, deep bond, you know. These, uh, these Assyrian uh, Christians, they are our, our colleagues at work. They, uh, they come to, to church with us. They are in our small groups, in our, in our university groups. They're, they're not completely separate from us, and they're carrying this incredible burden. I was speaking to a young, um, <coughs> a young Iraqi Christian from Mosul recently, who told me that his grandmother was still in Mosul and she'd been forced to flee the ISIS advance with nothing but the clothes she's wearing. This is a grandmother, a, a, an elderly, frail uh, lady. So these Christians are carrying, uh, who were in our midst, and they are carrying an incredible burden. Let me ask you, Elizabeth, about rallies in the streets because also over the weekend there were a whole bunch of uh, pro-Israel rallies of course, with what's going on there between Israel and Hamas. And that's not going to be the major topic of our conversation today. But the fact that people are prepared to get up out of their armchairs and be on the street for a rally, uh, the value of that can't be underestimated. Uh, no, it is. It's very good. Um, the Assyrian rally, I thought, was excellent. And I have to say, it was a, a, a rally sort of similar to this in 1998, that was put on by the Copts in Sydney. It only got about uh, five seconds of airplay on SBS News. Uh, but that rally where the cop, it just said that the cops were protesting the uh, arrest and torture of, of over a thousand cops in Upper Egypt. That made the news and uh, God used that to actually call me into full-time service on behalf of his persecuted church. So... I mean, many of us were disappointed that there were really no journalists covering the rally. There was uh, nothing in the newspapers on the following day. It was, but there was just a tiny soundbite on ABC. But God can still take that and uh, use it for His glory. So we pray that God will be using uh, the event still, even now, uh, to to do what he wills with it. Well, we're talking about what happened there on Saturday, and there may be those who are listening to us who've never really considered just how effective they personally may be if they take up the cause of Christian persecuted believers around the, uh, around the world too. Elizabeth, there was a, a group of Assyrian youths uh, at the rally on Saturday who presented a short skit in which they reenacted the way that ISIS treats Christians. Can you describe how that unfolded? Yes, they, um, <clears throat> there was a number of the um, uh, Iraqi Christian young men had dressed up in full, you know, uh, hoodies and and uh, and uh, the Islamic scarves and balaclavas, and they had chains and they grabbed a whole lot of you know young Christian kids out of the uh, out of the front of the rally. These were kids who had the white T-shirts on with the red letter Un Anun the letter N for Nasiriyah, the which means Christian in Arabic. And this is the letter that ISIS has been painting on, their, on the homes of Christians in Mosul so that they know that those homes have to be vacated because they belong to Christians, the Christians have to leave. Then the homes are acquired by the Islamic State. So that letter has become sort of symbolic of the, the suffering of the Christians in Mosul. So they drag these kids up onto the big platform at the front of Federation Square and got them down on their hands and knees and, uh, and abused them and pretended to kill them all. And, and then when the, the Islamists walked away, these Christian kids, it was a beautiful scene, I thought. They stood up, 
they walked to the back of the stage where they had a giant wooden cross and there would have been about eight to ten young Iraqis, probably aged from maybe ten through to twenty-one, uh, girls and boys, and they lifted up this enormous cross and they said, we are Iraqis, we are Christians, and we are proud. Save Iraqi Christians. And um, it was it was it was beautiful, and um, I thought it was an excellent event. The whole event was just so well done. It's a powerful statement, and it needs to be a powerful statement, given what Iraqi Christians have gone through. And almost to mention that in a a past tense, particularly for that city of Mosul, which is now completely devoid of Christians, and this is like the first time in history. Well, that's right, and I think this is what people need to realise. This is not just some little spat that's happening far, far away. Um, as, as I said on Saturday, Christianity has been decimated in its heartland in our lifetime and before our eyes. This is a historic event that is taking place. What's more, Christianity is in the process of being eradicated from its historic heartland, and all we need to do for this to happen is nothing. If we sit back and do nothing, then it will happen. It will happen. And so my call to the Australian church has been that we must step up and be the church that God demands that we be and that God has gifted us and empowered us to be. The the day has arrived when church passivity must end. We cannot sit back and watch this happening anymore. We must uh, be active. We must be involved. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Elizabeth. Bear one another's burdens, for in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love. Uh, Just how do you feel about uh, people perhaps uh, who feel like here we are in Australia so far removed from what's going on in some of these locations around the world when we reflect on the scriptures and we call ourselves biblical Christians, when we reflect on verses like that, Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, what is our moral responsibility, our responsibility before God when it comes to support, prayer, and even action for people who are undergoing persecution at this time? Yes, exactly, precisely. Well, the the Christian group I work with, um, Christian Faith and Freedom, they have a, a threefold uh, plan of action, and that is aid, advocacy, and prayer, intercessory prayer. So in terms of aid, we need to be giving and giving sacrificially. So I, I would actually maintain that it's quite beyond a situation now where churches can sit back and say, oh, look, our budget's all, you know, all fold tight and tight and everything, no room in the budget. No, we have to be giving sacrificially. We have to be giving beyond and we have to be giving, you know, even if it hurts a little bit. Because the fact of the matter is, we can afford to give. And the people we are giving to, these people have nothing. We need to be involved in advocacy. We need to be uh, lobbying our governments that we actually expect them to do what the Bible says they should be doing, to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and to plead the cause of the needy, Proverbs 31. This, this was an advice to kings. 
This is what the government must do. And I believe that the government must also, and uh, Australian Christian lobbies are doing a lot in this regard, must uh, help uh, provide refuge for uh, Syrian Christians from Syria and Iraq. They have nowhere to go. They are in a really horrendous situation. And we need to start opening our doors to them. And in terms of intercessory prayer, this is probably the most simple and yet the most powerful thing of all. There is not one single Christian who cannot be involved in intercessory prayer for their believers. And I always encourage people and remind them that intercessory prayer is advocacy to the highest authority. It is not insignificant. When you, you have to realize that when you get on your knees and you pray uh, on behalf of, of these brothers and sisters of yours, you are walking into the courts of the Lord and presenting your appeal at the feet of the one who really cares and really does have power to change things. We'll talk some more about uh, activity and about prayer and I want to talk some more, too, about the courts of the Lord very shortly. But I want to invite our listeners to be a part of our conversation today, too, Elizabeth. Uh, you may want to contribute to our conversation. You may not feel uh, competent to uh, to contribute at a high level when we talk about these sorts of areas of persecution. And there's so much more to talk about. But you may want to stand in solidarity with Christian believers who are undergoing such intense persecution at this time. We would love to hear from you. Uh, your thoughts, even your fears for where Australians sit in the mix of upheaval around the world. Uh, and uh, so you can call us. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-880-876. That's 1-800-880-876. Elizabeth, there's some more things we want to talk about, and just to preview those before we get into those in uh, a more solid way in just a few moments, but we want to talk about Hindutva. What is Hindutva? Uh, Hindutva is uh, it's militant Hindu nationalism and uh, it's the ideology of the uh, government that now rules India, it rules many states of India and it rules at the, fed, at the federal, at the central level. So it's extremely important. It's a Hindu nationalist ideology, believes that India is a, should be a Hindu state with Hindus receiving special privileges and everyone else is a second-class citizen. So it's not something that impacts us here in Australia in the way that Islam and other things does, but it is a very serious matter for 70,000, uh, you know, uh, Indian missionaries, for uh, millions of uh, Indian Christians. Well, we're going to talk about the rise of Hindu nationalism and what that means for Christians in India. We also are going to be talking about, uh, in the coming time and the remaining time in this hour, uh, what's happening in Nigeria. We're all uh, familiar with, and we were shocked by, uh, the kidnapping of those schoolgirls by the Boko Haram movement. But there's a twist on that which is very disturbing, the thought that uh, that young girls are being used as suicide bombers and people are putting two and two in together and suggesting that there may even be links uh, with uh, the Boko Haram using these schoolgirls as suicide bombers. Uh, yes, it's a, a horrific thought. At the moment, it's just conjecture because nothing has been uh, conclusively proven. 
But uh, honestly, uh, I would be very surprised if these girls that have been suicide bombers recently, uh, I think it's five or six of them in the space of four days, all teenage girls, I'd be surprised if they are not the kidnapped girls. So we're waiting for uh, DNA evidence, uh, forensic tests to you know, prove the situation one way or the other, but... I'm I'm gravely concerned, and so are the parents of the Chibok girls. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil Johnson with you on this Tuesday edition of 2020. We're talking through issues of Christian persecution around the world, and we're talking about how we, as Aussies, respond to the sorts of things that we are hearing that are so disturbing. Elizabeth Kendall, religious liberty analyst, is our guest. Elizabeth, we began to talk about the rise of Hindutva and a focus on India, where the Hindu religion obviously is very prominent. And now we're seeing with the election of the BJP, some of us were following through the elections that were going on in India recently, uh, the rise of the BJP has now confirmed that there is going to be a rise in Hindu nationalism which affects the way that Christians are treated. Uh, what more can you tell us about those, uh, those elections, the BJP, and how significant that is? Oh, it's hugely significant. And once again, we're looking at something that's not a new fad. <clears throat> I think people, because fail to realise how historic this movement actually is, uh, it has its roots almost a century ago, back when um, India was you know, under British uh, colonial uh, rule. You get the development of... Uh, you know, Indian nationalism and Hindu nationalism and all that is very understandable, I suppose. Now, the the RSS, which is uh, the main sort of paramilitary force, the first of the organ of the Hindu nationalist groups to be founded, was founded in 1925. So here's an organisation <clears throat> that has uh, almost a hundred years uh, under its belt. Uh, and then you go on, you've got the Hindu uh, Nationalist Council, the VHP. It was formed in 1964. So it's been around for a long time too. The youth militias, the Badrang Dal, was founded in 1948 in order to uh, bring down the, the, uh, the mosque, the Babri Mosque in Ayodhya. So these groups have been around for a long time. And Hindu nationalism has been developed it's been refined, it's been spread through the country, and the, the Hindu Nationalist Political Party, that is the political wing of this great big Hindu Nationalist body that we often, that we refer to as the Sang Paravar, uh, the political wing, the BJP, was founded in 1980, and has, it rose to become India's uh, main opposition party a decade later, and now it is in power in the centre with a simple majority, so it can pass its legislation. Uh, the, uh, the main concern is that the BJP has always lobbied for anti-conversion laws. Uh, they, they, uh, every state that they rule, they have anti-conversion legislation. Um, now, to get a change to the Constitution, they would need... Uh, they would need a two-thirds majority, but I don't think they'll actually go for that. I think that they will bring these laws in simply by reinterpreting the Constitution, 
So they reinterpret what it means to have religious freedom. They'll say religious freedom means you, are, you have a right to the religion you were born with, which they believe for everyone is Hinduism, but you don't have a right to change your religion or to try and make other people change their religion. So I think it's going to become very difficult. There are 83,000 missionaries, Indian missionaries, working cross-culturally in India. 83,000. India is the second largest missionary sending country in the world after the US. And there are at least 71 million Christians in India. And it's still one of the great unreached nations in, of the world in, in so many quarters. So um, we're expecting that things are going to become increasingly difficult. Well, we'll talk some more about the rise of Hindutva, this nationalism in India. You're welcome to be a part of our conversation. one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. if you'd like to be a part of the Talkback conversation today. Robin is in Mount Morgan in Queensland. Hello, Robin. Welcome to 2020. Yes, hello. Robin, what's your contribution to our conversation today? Um, it's just that um, <clears throat> I, I keep up with these things as well, and... Um, I'm really concerned. Well, I'm not not overly because I know we're in Christ, but I I just feel that too many people in Western countries are so complacent about what's happening over there. I mean, there's so many um, issues, but I mean, I've been to several um, Asian countries in a Christian, um, you know, outreach sort of thing, and and also Germany, and um, I've you know know the history of Germany and stuff like that, and before the Nazis and whatever. I mean, we can't sit back and just um, be comfortable because um, they're on the front line, our Christian brothers and sisters that are in Iraq, Syria and all of that, um, those places. But we're next. I mean, um, and I also wanted to um, mention Avi Lipkin, you know, the, um, the Jewish, he's sure. a Messianic Jew. Yep. And uh, his testimony of a, an, a Canadian woman that was... Um, she was. She had some sort of a uh, government job, like a social worker or something. But she was looking after this um, Egyptian uh, doctor who was under protection because when she left Egypt, these two mullahs came and visited her and uh, told her that she was, you know, said congratulations, you're going to work for us. And um, it, just to cut a long story short, um, they killed her best friend right in front of her and said, "This will happen to you if you don't work for us." because they knew she was going to Canada um, to work over there. And, and they, they said to her, you as a doctor will have um, access to all of the addresses of people, names and addresses. We want you to mention to collect all of the Jewish names and everybody who's um, affiliated with the Jews and all that sort of stuff. And they told her that they have, um, they have uh, Muslim people, spies in every country. Uh, well, they mentioned so many countries, Western countries, and uh, they said that they are um, making a collection. And I'm thinking of the Nazis. They turned over every rock to get every Jew they could possibly get. And it's, it's the same thing with the, um, with the Muslim terrorists. And um, I, I can see... Um, I know there's some I similarities that you can see there, Robin. Uh, okay. Let me there's similarities you can see. Let me just uh, bring Elizabeth into uh, the conversation. Elizabeth, uh, similarities with what you might see uh, of persecution today with various groups, whether they be uh, Hindu, as we've been talking about, or uh, or Islamic. Uh, similarities to Nazism is that uh, is that a fair comment to do to bring to bring similarities and draw lines there? 
Oh, it's absolutely fair. Um, there is there is uh, every reason to suggest that both Hindutva, uh, Hindu nationalism, and um, <clears throat> and uh, Islam, which is essentially uh, a nationalistic a Muslim nationalism, they're both uh, fascist in their ideologies. They are they are not free. <laughs> They promote um, a religious, a form of religious nationalism that is really uh, fascist in its origins. I'd like to just go back to something Robin said, though, regarding the um, the, the church's uh, sort of separation from these issues and lack of interest in these issues. <clears throat> Partly, it comes from this uh, failure to really contemplate what it means to be one body in Christ and. Even if these issues don't touch us personally, they are touching the body of Christ and hurting yeah. the body of Christ of which we are a part. And I believe that uh, the Lord has expectations of us. And he says, uh, he says that, you know, in the end, uh, in the last days, he will be saying, whatever you did for these, the least of my brethren, you did for me. And whatever you did not do for the least of these, my brethren, you did not do for me. Yeah. And I take that uh, very seriously. Mm. The other reason I believe why churches are not paying much attention to these issues is because there's been so much pressure on pastors for so long to uh, give their people um, a good time, <laughs> to give them mm. celebratory worship, endless celebration. Everyone has to leave church feeling upbeat and good. Yes. And the thing is, it doesn't allow us to actually uh, take a handle on the really horrendous issues in life, to confront them realistically, and even to um, to have a time where we can lament and we can grieve and we can get down to the really serious business of intercessory prayer. Uh, Robin from Mount Morgan, thank you so much for your contribution you, today on 2020. Uh, really appreciate your call. It's Neil Johnson with you on this Tuesday edition of 2020. Elizabeth Kendall's our guest, religious liberty analyst. We're talking about issues of persecution, Christian believers in so many nations around the world. Here's an item, though, that will, as a parent, make you squirm and feel so uncomfortable. Uh, the issues that are going on in the nation of Nigeria right now. You might be familiar with the abduction of around 270 schoolgirls recently. And if you were a parent of one of those schoolgirls and you realised that there was a new trend that was happening in Nigeria where young girls were being used as suicide bombers, you might be squirming and you might be dreadfully uncomfortable about the idea that it may be your daughter brainwashed and sent as a suicide bomber. Elizabeth Kendall, this is a, such a disturbing story, and we mentioned earlier there isn't yet uh, solid evidence for that, but what makes you feel as though this is likely happening today in Nigeria? Well, these these attacks have all been claimed by Boko Haram, so they are Boko Haram terrorist attacks. On Sunday the 27th, a 15-year-old or a teenage girl blew herself up. On Monday, the very next day, another teenage girl blew herself up in a petrol station. A few hours later, a teenage girl blew herself up in a trade show. The next day, Tuesday the 29th, um, two girls entered two different mosques, both blew themselves up and 13 Muslims were killed. 
On the very next day, Thursday the 30th, another girl blew herself up at the Cano Polytechnic, killing six. So we have uh, five girls dead in four days, in four, su- in four suicide bombings, all using teenage girls. These are all Boko Haram attacks, and Boko Haram happens to have more than 200 mostly Christian teenage girls in captivity. So people, uh, it's understandable that they're just putting two, two, two and two together and saying, what is going on here? One, uh, one blogger, a journalist blogger, uh, analyst, uh, suggested that maybe Boko Haram has just found a way that they can save their men up for, for, uh, for combat and use these girls. And uh, I think that that could be quite likely. Uh, some people have suggested, you know, maybe they've been hypnotised, but I would suggest that that would be not necessary at all. You've got girls, young girls taken into captivity. They've been there for months now, since the middle of April. You, all you would need to do to get a girl to, to do that, you'd rape her, then you'd tell her there is no escaping, then you'd tell her, if you don't do as you're told, we're going to rape your mother and your sister and kill your father and your brother, and she would do what she, she was told. She would go out and she would commit suicide. She would kill herself. It's interesting that a number of these attacks, even though they were targeted at police and at shoppers, actually killed no one but the bomber. I would suggest that some of these girls have actually tried quite hard to make sure no one else gets killed and I'm, I'm uh, very concerned about who these girls are, whether they're, uh, you know, Muslim girls or not. But the thought that they could be the Chibuk girls, uh, I find uh, deeply, deeply distressing. We'll talk some more about this in just a few moments. Inviting listeners to be a part of our conversation, the talkback line is open, one eight hundred eighty eight zero eighty seven six. Let's take a call or two. Ross is at Midway Point in Tasmania. Hello, Ross. Welcome to 2020. Uh, good day. How are you going? Uh, well, Hello, thanks, Ross. Ross. What's your contribution to our conversation today? Um, it's amazing to me, um, just for um, average Christians in places like Australia or in Western countries, um, just the uh, complacency about what is actually happening over in um, over in places like the Middle East, as far as the persecution of Christians is concerned, um, um, I'm actually truly, um, shockingly amazed. Can't, I just can't believe it. I mean, Ross, uh, were you familiar with some of these things before listening to our conversation today? Has this oh, yeah, shaken you yeah, a little bit? Yeah, yeah long, long time before. Mm. Yeah, I mean. You know, uh, use an expression, you know. Um, Blog and Freddy couldn't miss it. Mm. Um, you know, okay, you might not pick that up from typical media reports, um, although it's still pretty hard to miss it from those too. But um, um, Is you know. there a sense, Ross, uh, just let me hear your heartbeat for a moment. There is a sense, isn't there, that a lot of uh, Christian believers are a part of a local church just like they might be the member of a social club and... Getting a little bit deeper isn't always comfortable. Is this one of the concerns you're thinking about? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, just... Um, um, I mean, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know? I mean, I might not personally know somebody over in over in Iraq or Syria or wherever, um, 
but um, they are truly our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as Elizabeth said before, you know, we're called to uh, bear each other's burdens. Um, um, you know, um, and that can take uh, form in practical ways like prayer. Um, you know, um, Jesus is on the throne. You know, and he's not impotent. You know, it says um, it says in his word that um, um, is anything too difficult for me? And the answer for that is no. Um, there's nothing that's too difficult for him, and um, and he does answer prayers. Elizabeth Kendall is Elizabeth with us, listening into the what you're saying here, Ross. Uh, Elizabeth, your thoughts? My thoughts uh, concerning uh, Christian believers is, is that I think we need to really start appreciating the fact that we need to have the heart of God in this. Uh, I think we can, as fallen, self-interested human beings, you know, get along quite comfortably not knowing about about what's going on and not even caring about what's going on. But you can't do that if you have the heart of God. If uh, the Holy Spirit is doing a work in your heart that enables you to see things as God sees them and feel what God feels... And it's quite a risky thing, actually, to put yourself out there and pray, Dear God, uh, let me feel what you're feeling and call me to, to something. But I believe that's what we have to do. We have to ask God for some, for some heart surgery. The other thing is, in churches, I often find that the greatest resistance actually comes from pastors, not from, uh, not generally from the congregations. There's always, you know, a variation, uh, you know, in congregations. Some people don't want to know about suffering, you know, and other people you find just to know about it will move them to tears and, and they want to know more. But pastors, as I said before, are under so much pressure to, uh, to provide an upbeat service that has everybody feeling good that there's a great reluctance to actually uh, inform, inform their congregations about what's happening or to lead their congregations from the front in intercessory prayer for the persecuted church. And I think maybe we need to encourage our pastors more, you know, and, and to sort of let them off the hook. You don't have to, you know, create a, a happy party service just for me. You know, I, I would like to come to church and be involved in intercessory prayer for my brothers and sisters. You know, let your pastors know that you are willing to do that and that you want to do that and that you believe that we should be doing that. Uh, Ross from Midway Point in Tasmania, thanks for being part of 2020 today. Uh, Let's take another call too. This one, an anonymous one from Victoria. Hello, welcome to 2020. Hello. Hi there. What's your contribution to our conversation? Uh, I just, uh, I find it hard to talk about this to bring it up. Uh, regarding, um, you know, the Christian persecution. Uh, I'm personally myself persecuted by my own family members here in Australia. You know, it's happening here on our own doorstep. Yeah, uh, just uh, I really respect Elizabeth's views on all the topics she speaks about. And, you know, uh, you know Joshua 1 and Romans 1 and Micah 6, 8, you know, God loves justice, you know, and kindness, and I just don't think that uh, my family members are, you know, being very kind to myself, persecuting me, rejecting God's word. Uh, that's just what I had to say. I don't know what. Uh, when you say when you say persecution, uh, what sort of persecution are you talking about? Oh, uh, just uh, persecution.
executing God's word like uh, it, I think it says in um, Deuteronomy, uh, display on your doorpost, for example, God's word, you know, and, you know, people come into your home and, you know, you might have a few little Bible verses just on your, uh, you know, around and they'll virtually say remove them, you know, it offends them, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, it's just hard, very hard, you know, and, yeah, it's your own family members to do that to you and friends, yeah. Elizabeth Kendall, it all starts uh, with little things like those sorts of persecutions for uh, outwardly displaying your faith. Uh, it can lead to other things as a nation's uh, atmosphere changes uh, with certain levels of leadership. Uh, and that's exactly right. <clears throat> and I think um, uh, one thing I've found is that to be involved with the persecuted church uh, now is a great way of preparing yourself for when persecution comes your way. And the fact is this is becoming increasingly common uh, in, t- in today's society, in, in Australia, <clears throat> uh, mainly because we are moving away as, as a nation from our Judeo-Christian heritage. We're pulling the carpet up from under ourselves. We're, we're, we've got this country that is determined to prove that we are not a Christian country. And so it's taking the axe to the root of the trees and it's, uh, it's um, to, to spite itself. And the tree will not stay green. And we are seeing persecution and hostility towards Christians and hostility towards faith is uh, simmering and percolating and growing in society. Uh, it, it's worse now for, for school children than it was when my children were at school. And uh, that wasn't all that long ago. And... Uh, my children were actually bullied for being Christians, but it's worse now because they have to, uh, kids at school these days, they have to conform or they have to actually be able to uh, support things that they cannot in all conscience support. Uh, with these um, safe school programs, they call them, uh, kids are, are not just, uh, they're not just called to be tolerant. They're called to affirm things like same-sex marriage, affirm homosexual lifestyles. And a lot of Christian kids, they just simply can't do that. And so they're persecuted for, their, for, for doing nothing, essentially, but for holding a biblical values. Um, so persecution is growing. It's growing probably more than what a lot of people realise. Right here in Australia, there is a, an increasingly uh, anti-religious, specifically anti-Christian mood that is swelling. And uh, I think if we just keep turning a blind eye to the reality of persecution, uh, we're not going to be ready for it when it comes knocking on our door. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil Johnson with you on this Tuesday edition of 2020. We're talking through issues of Christian persecution in Australia and overseas. And Really, we've got bigger focus overseas than we have here in Australia. Elizabeth Kendall, Religious at Liberty Analyst, is our guest. She's also a prayer advocate. You can subscribe to her Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. I encourage that. She's also the author of a wonderful book called Turn Back the Battle. 
If you're looking for a little bit uh, more theological, something a little deeper when you want to understand issues of how Christians stand against persecution, uh, turn back the battle. Isaiah speaks to Christians today. Elizabeth's also adjunct research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Islam and Other Faiths at the Melbourne School of Theology. Uh, Elizabeth, when we started talking in this last segment about uh, Australians feeling persecuted, it's a little bit not quite the same at the present time as talking about the sorts of persecution that's happening in the Middle East where you can lose your head, literally, uh, for being a Christian. But I recall in an earlier conversation with you uh, when you suggested that things in Australia like uh, the legislation for things like same-sex marriage may be a trigger for persecution that we've never known before. Uh, is that something that's still in your thoughts? Yes, that's still in my thoughts. And the fact of the matter is whether, you know, persecution hurts. And if you've got, you know, someone that you love and care about uh, looking down on you and uh, criticising what you do and maybe or marginalising you, it hurts. Uh, You don't actually have to be driven from your home to feel uh, the pain that can be felt from, uh, you know, the contempt that will come from someone that you love, and so you know, I don't don't underestimate the uh, the the pain that is even within our own church communities of people who are already suffering, you know, at the hands of their own family members and their work colleagues and their school friends and all sorts of things. I think if we ignore these things in our churches, we're not actually uh, confronting life with realism. I mean, the fact is. Every single Sunday, you know, you, you can look out across the congregation and there's actually a heap of pain out there. There is a lot of pain in that congregation for all sorts of reasons. And I think we need to start being honest about it and uh, confronting it. And the fact is that we have a, a Lord who has made wonderful promises to us that he will never leave us and forsake us. And as I said to the, to the rally with Syrian and Iraqi Christians the other day, um, you know, when the, when, the, uh, when the Israelites complained after the fall of Jerusalem and said, God does not see, God does not care, uh, which is, we get that from Lamentations, God said, no, I do see, I do care, and I will lift up all those who trust in me. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We have a God who has made wonderful promises and we just need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and he will see us through. That's, that's his promise. Elizabeth, callers coming in left, right and centre. Uh, I'll need to t- ask our callers to be very quick, but uh, Sunday is in Rockhampton in Queensland. Hello, Sunday. Welcome to 2020. Hello. Hello. Sunday. Hello. Yes, what's, uh, you need to be fairly quick. What's your comment, Sunday? Are you there? Uh, let's try Barbara in Kingston. Hello, Barbara. Hi. Barbara, what's your contribution? My You'll contribution need to be quick. My contribution is this, that um, I've, I come in a family that I'm the only Christian, and for many, many years I, I proclaim what I believe, um, but I'm trusting that the Lord will touch them, and there's a lot of pain that go, goes that with prayer and, and um, you know, and, and hurting in, inside. Um, but uh, my sister's very much for the Jews, and she's very much um, talks about it to some people who uh, classify her as a racist. 
uh, for her comments, and so she just doesn't talk about that. Mm. But she has been in, in Israel, and so she knows uh, what the Jewish people have suffered. Um, also, I'm in tr- very um, uh, involved in the church, and I believe that what we're talking about with pastors being under pressure, um, you know, to ease situations, but some of them don't want to know too much about what's happening in the persecuted church. But with through open doors, I understand that there's a lot going on, and I'm praying for the different ones and crying out for them. Barbara, thank, thank you, you Barbara. so much for that. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, running very short of time, just quickly, uh, with what's happening in Israel, uh, the divided opinion, and yet, uh, uh, you know, most uh, sensible, logical people are coming down on the side of Israel. When we talk about what happens to Israel, it's illustrative, isn't it, that we need to look very carefully at the issues and see where persecution is truly coming from. Well, that's right, and I think to understand what's happening uh, in Israel, and in fact in, in most of the modern conflicts today, we must understand the way asymmetric conflict works. The weaker power, which is virtually always the Muslim power, will have to, in order to, it cannot win a military victory. So it is only seeking a political or propaganda victory. Uh, and that's all they can hope for, and that's what they're going for. And that's why they use human shields, and that's why they spread all sorts of um, media that is inaccurate. And we need to have our our, um, our antenna up and be alert to these things. Well, Elizabeth, I'd encourage listeners to enter into the courts of the Lord. You said that is the highest court. Mm-hmm. We can take our concerns. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, in talking through issues about Syria, about Iraq, about the rise of Hindu nationalism in India and the challenge of Nigeria, uh, I'll point people to uh, your website, Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Just uh, Google Elizabeth Kendall. Uh, Elizabeth is a religious liberty analyst. You'll be so much better informed reading the things she's writing. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us again today on 2020. Thanks for this opportunity, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts. Or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.